stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 12, chapter 14. As for the one whose faith is, who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Father, would you bless your word to us this morning? Help us to receive it. Help us to believe it and be transformed by it so that we might not only have a clearer view of your mercy, but that others would get a a clearer view through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so you'll, you'll notice, I don't know if you make use of the outline or the prayer guide, but uh, here's this week's outline. <laughs> Anytime you see this, you can know something absolutely uh, for sure, that, that the sermon fell apart around uh, four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, um, you know, when Taylor's patiently waiting for me to get all the bullets and stuff to her. Uh, basically what happened was I'm like, all right, there's just, there's too much here. Um, my sermon was about 12 pages long, and I thought, that's, that's not going to go over well. So if you want to write your own outline, uh, here's where we're going. We're going to talk about quarreling over opinions. Uh, we're going to talk about the weak and the strong, and we're going to wrap up with this whole dynamic that exists between love and the law and our opinions. Uh, so let's, let's begin by um, quarreling over those opinions as, um, as Paul leads. And, um, and he does two things as he's discussing opinions. He's... Um, He's moving into the matter of things that are debatable, things that you know, are disputable. Um, but that doesn't mean that he hasn't addressed already things that are right and things that are wrong. Uh, and I want to make that clear. So Paul is writing from Corinth. He's writing from Corinth, and, and whoever it is that has returned from Rome has given him an update on the state of the congregation there. And he says, you know, they're, they're bickering. Uh, they're quarreling and they're jealous of one another and there are, there's division within the church at Rome. And Paul goes, all right, I guess we, we should probably focus on love. And, uh, and that's what Paul's application is after spending 11 chapters outlining the gospel. And there's this lack of love that needs to be addressed. There are brothers and sisters 
who are failing to show to one another the same mercy, the same grace, the same love that God has shown to each one of us, right? They're not passing it along. So Paul is guiding the church in this delicate path between not only what's right, what's wrong, you know, the law and not becoming legalists, but also he's going to tell them and teach them how do you deal with debatable matters, disputable issues, um, without becoming, um, you know, without becoming a liberal or becoming antinomian, becoming uh, giving too much room for license, you know, where you, you just kind of lose your witness. So anyway... He's, I want to point out that he's talked about right and wrong. This was uh, back in chapter 13. Look at verse 8. Because Paul there uh, describes what love is, that love uh, has fulfilled the law. Uh, you can't, you can't com- uh, obey the law without loving, and you can't love truly without keeping the law, because the law means, you know, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment is summed up in the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is making very, very clear there is such a thing as right and there's such a thing as wrong. Um, The gospel doesn't release us from this obligation uh, to obey God's commandments. Um, The gospel frees us, let me be really clear, it frees us from the curse of the law. Like we're not under the curse and the penalty for breaking the law, but we're still under the law. It still guides us in our behavior. It still shows us the character of God. It still teaches us, and it's valuable to us. You know, one of the verses that um, uh, convicts me, uh, because I don't feel as passionate about the law. You can read any of Psalm 119, but uh, I think it's Jeremiah. You know, please the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. And I go, that's not exactly how I view the law, but I should. And so should you. Not because we're trying to keep the law to to impress God. And not because we're trying to keep the law to impress other people. Do you know why we keep the law? To love God. To love other people. It's how we learn what is appropriate in the love language that we express to God and to our neighbor. There is such a thing as right and there is such a thing as wrong. Paul is affirming that not everything is subjective. There's such a thing as black, and there's such a thing as white. And then he moves on. And now we get into the debatable matters. Because at the same time, even after covering there's black, there's white, there's right, and there's wrong, he starts saying, all right, well, there's this other stuff that's you know, in the category of gray. There are times when Paul's affirming that things fall into the category of opinions, uh, like you see here in verse 1, rather than laws. Um, there are places where it's realistic and, and rational to, to say, what are we talking about here? The word, actually, that um, the ESV is translating opinions is the word where, the Greek word that we get, the English word dialogue, right? A, a back-and-forth discussion over something that the NIV translates that word as debatable matters. The uh, New King James says that these are, are doubtful things. And so you get these um, places where people are treating as law what is actually an opinion? And in this case, it's, the, it's a matter of what do you eat? What's proper to eat? So imagine uh, somebody becomes a Christian, uh, and they were very, very active in the organization uh, PETA, you know, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. And that person becomes a Christian, and they're joined to the church. And then you've got somebody who's a you know, super big wig in the NRA, 
uh, right? And they come into the church and they join. And, and now, you know, there's this debate and the person from the vegetarian, you know, what's the, you know, animal-friendly background is saying, well, if you really love Jesus, you know, you wouldn't eat that animal. And the person from the NRA background is saying, well, if you really love Jesus, you'd shut up. Um, and back and forth it goes. Not a lot of dialogue in that, right? Not, not a whole lot of understanding, not a whole lot of patience, not a whole lot of forbearance, not a lot of love. And we have to figure out how, how do we allow for valid differences of opinion when it comes to how do I follow Jesus? What does it look like to love one another? What does it look like to be part of the body of Christ where we're coming with different backgrounds, different preferences, different opinions? How do we learn to dialogue? Oh my gosh, dialogue is becoming extinct. People don't listen to each other anymore. Especially on social media, you fire off your rant. You expect everybody to just put up with it, you know. Here's what I think without ever bothering to say, "Hey, tell me what tell me why you think the way you think. Tell me why you do what you do." Um, and it and it's everything from our one-on-one relationships all the way to, you know, presidential debates. It's on display everywhere. Nobody models patient, honest, considerate dialogue anymore. And this is what Paul is calling us to. How do we love each other? How do we listen to one another? How can we learn uh, how to have honest conversations and dialogue? Um, the, the, uh, the issue is the weak and the strong here. Um, you know, talking about the weak person. Welcome him. Don't quarrel over opinions. Uh, the one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, right? So, so Rome is a, a multi-ethnic church. Paul has heard that there's a lot of quarreling going on. There's division within the church. And the reason for that division uh, is that fundamentally uh, you can divide the church in Rome in two groups. Those who are coming from a uh, Roman or Greek religious background, you know, all the different gods and goddesses and temple worship and sacrifices and all that stuff. They're the majority. Um, I don't know what percentage, but we just know that they're the majority because um, prior to Paul's letter, just a few years prior, the Jewish Christians in Rome had been, um, you know, um, exiled. And, And now they had been brought back, but they've come back and they're the minority in the Roman church. And they've got a Jewish background. And with that Jewish background... Comes a lot of tradition, culture, uh, things that that God put in place uh, to guide young Israel to say, "Hey, this is what it looks like for you to live set apart from the rest of the nations." Uh, things like dietary laws, things like you know certain religious days that help with devotion, and then the reality came in the person of Jesus. He was the fulfillment, the fullness of all that. Jesus said, "I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it." And that meant that a bunch of the things that were ceremonial, a bunch of the things that were liturgical, uh, those things fell away with Jesus. And, uh, and yet, somebody can put their faith in Jesus from a Jewish background and still feel like, I, I, don't, I feel like I still need to do these things. You know, like, this is just the habit now, and it's what I do to sort of feel spiritual or religious. And if I you know, don't abide by those rules anymore... I'm, you know, I'm really off center. I'm, I don't know if God likes this. I don't know if this is pleasing to God. And so Paul talks about eating uh, meat 
He talks about observing certain days, and he even uh, goes on later in the chapter to talk about drinking wine. And the presumption among the commentators and the scholars, it's not uniform agreement. There's, there's a little bit of debate. But the presumption is that for a Jewish person who's very scrupulous and has strong opinions about what they can eat, what they can't eat, they're going through Rome, and they're not sure, is any of this food kosher? Is any of the, the, the meat, uh, am I allowed to eat it? Has it been blessed by a rabbi? Or, uh, you know, is it the right meat to eat? Because if you read Leviticus, um, or if you're new to the Bible, in the Old Testament, Leviticus just gives all these different rules about what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can touch, what you can't touch, you know, different ways for Israel to be set apart. Now, if you're a Jewish person, and you've, come, you've become a Christian, you, your, your Bible was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are certain heroes, uh, heroes of the faith. You know, you can think of Noah, uh, you can think of Joseph, you can think of Moses, uh, you can think of Daniel. And if you're trying to learn how to live a godly life, you're going to look at some of these different um, heroes of the faith. And so in, your, in their thinking, it's not unlikely that the Jewish background believers had Daniel in mind. In chapter 1, verse 8 of the prophet Daniel, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank um, because he just wanted to make extra careful uh, measure that he wouldn't do something that would be displeasing to God according to Jewish dietary restrictions and devotional precepts for you know, how you worship. That's all, that's all in there. Um, and you, I don't want you to get the impression that these, these people um, are, don't have believing faith. They do. They're just, um, Paul's classifying them, their faith is a weaker faith. It's not as robust or strong. Uh, they remind me a lot of um, the father who brings to Jesus his son who has like this demonic possession. And the son's life is endangered frequently. And the father comes to Jesus, and he's distraught, and he doesn't know what to do. And he says, Jesus, if you can, if you can help me, if, if you're able, can you heal my son? Cast this demon out of him. And Jesus just turns and says, if, if you can, all, all things are possible for those who believe. You know, and Jesus heals his son. But the, the, the father's reaction is really a, a beautiful one. He says, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I have faith, but help me where my faith is weak. And Jesus would constantly turn to the disciples and say, you have little faith. You know, come on, grow. Let your faith become more robust, more strong, and so on. So that's the one audience that Paul has in mind. Those who have trusted in Jesus, but they haven't really recognized how Jesus has fulfilled so many of the different distinctions that God had put in place originally so that they could know they're, they're different, they're set apart, they're holy. And now, through Jesus, through faith in him, we're not checking those boxes in order to make God happy. We're seeking to love God, we're seeking to love our neighbor, and there's a lot of freedom in how we do that. And that's really the people who Paul would classify as those who are stronger in the faith. Uh, their conscience, conscience is not as tender, it's not as um, uh, anxious about what to do and what not to do, more freedom, more joy. And Paul tells them in verse 3, let not the one who eats, that would be the strong in faith, despise the one who abstains. 
And let not the one who abstains, that's the person whose faith is weaker, pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Earlier on in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul said that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then in chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So these are the Gentile majority. They've come to Christ. They don't have all the uh, kind of the background in Judaism to weigh down their freedom and their experience of of joy um, and liberty in the gospel. And Paul says that they have a responsibility if you're strong. Your responsibility is to bear with the failings of the weak. Uh, He gets to that in chapter 15. Uh, It goes like this. Imagine that you have uh, a friend uh, who's Muslim. uh, You've got a good friendship. You've been sharing your your life with him. You've you've been sharing your faith with him. Uh, And... You, you have him over for dinner, uh, you know, you're careful about what you serve because um, Islam has dietary restrictions similar to Judaism, no pork. So that pork tenderloin you were going to grill, I, no, nope, can't do that. And good for you. You get an A-plus for cultural sensitivity. You have a great dinner, maybe you're having, you know, hamburgers or something. Uh, no, yeah, hamburger steak, not ham. Um, so then you're starting to witness, and he's asking questions. Like, well, tell me about, um, you, you don't seem to be weighed down with anxiety, or you don't seem to have, you know, shame, or you don't seem to have guilt. And, and then, you know, through the conversation, you're sharing with them, yeah, it, Jesus has taken away my guilt. Jesus has taken away my shame. He's given me new life. His death accomplished the forgiveness of my sins. And, and then he rose again. And he gave me a brand new start. Clean record. Uh, I'm forgiven. Uh, I have a new heart, uh, I have a new hope, I have a new future, and all of this can be yours too, you know, in Christ. And your Muslim friend, lo and behold, says, I want to follow Jesus. Some of you might, you know, like, you'd never imagine you'd hear that from them. And then you go, wow, that's amazing. And, and so you say, well, should we pray? Yes, you should pray with your friend. Should I bring him or her to church uh, to worship? Yes, you should bring him or her to church? Should I invite them to my home group and get discipled that way? Yes, you should bring them to your home group, your Bible study, whatever. Um, Should we have a celebration uh, when they get baptized? Yes, you should have a celebration. If we go to a restaurant and we're celebrating, should I order the big plate of bacon? Probably not. This would be a bad idea because that Muslim background believer, they're still imagining there are things that they should do and shouldn't do. And their conscience hasn't matured yet. And they're still chewing on Jesus. Kind of like I'm working on his bacon. And they're understanding all the implications of the gospel. So, by the way, if you want any bacon after the service, you're welcome to it. Some of you, by the way, as we're dealing with matters of opinion, you're offended that I actually put that plate of bacon on the table where we put the communion elements. But that, that table is a table. That table is something that we use on certain times, certain you know, uh, Sundays to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, don't make a mistake. A table is just a table. Those are the kind of issues that we're talking about. Where's the freedom? And how do we have these dialogues and these discussions? But by all means, you're welcome to bacon afterward. 
So, as Paul's explaining, you're weak, here's your reaction to the strong, you're judging them. You're strong, here's your reaction to the weak, you're despising them, you know, dismissing them. And instead, Paul is saying, you're supposed to welcome one another. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, he's talking to the strong here, welcome the weak person. Verse 3, let not the one who abstains, that's the weak person, pass judgment on the one who eats, that's the strong person, because God has welcomed the strong person. God welcomes the weak, God welcomes the strong. What does the welcome of God look like? The welcome of God, um, Joel put it wonderfully in his prayer, the welcome of God is God welcoming us and loving us when we were weak. It's not that we weren't even... um, able to obey some of the laws, we weren't just sort of weak. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. God didn't dismiss us. He didn't, he didn't judge us. He actually gives us pardon, and he gives us commendation instead of condemnation. And the way that God welcomes us is through Jesus. Jesus came. He died for our sins. Um, he rose again so that we can have new life in him. And when we believe that, that's where we receive the welcome of God. We are not welcomed on the basis of the rules that we keep. We are not welcome on the basis of, you know, the faith or the spirituality that that I possess. We are welcome fundamentally on the basis of Jesus. And he has to be the basis upon which we relate to one another. Same mercy that he's shown to me, I need to show to others. The same welcome that he's shown to me, I need to show to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of fellowship. We don't want to admit it, but there are times, each one of us, there are times when um, you're strong in your faith and there are times when you're weak in your faith. There are times when you um, have great freedom and joy and there are times when your scruples get the best of you. We generally think of ourselves as strong instead of weak. And growing in Christ means I'm better able to identify the places where I'm weak. Uh, This is going to help us learn how to love, by the way. Um, I want to show you these slides to give you a sense of that dynamic between, well, if I can show them to you. How are we doing up there? Maybe we're going to skip that. Oh, no, we're not. Good. Um, the dynamic between love and law and opinions. We'll just go with this slide. That's cool. Um, love is at the core. Love fulfills the law, and love needs to be the basis for which, uh, upon which we do all of our relationships and all of our relating, whether that's to God or to our neighbor. And God gives us the, the laws, the commandments, to show us tangibly what does that look like because we don't love people in a vacuum. Uh, God says, here's, here's the, the play area, frolic in the green space, but don't climb the fence. Um, and that's what the laws are. And then beyond that are the opinions. They're kind of gray. They're, they have fuzzy edges. And, and those are the things where we have dialogue and dispute. Where we get into trouble is this. The laws we all agree on, Ten Commandments, etc. But then we start putting love outside of those laws. And what replaces love are our opinions. And this is where you get all the divisions in the church. Divisions over theology, divisions over money, how you, how you should spend it, divisions over uh, politics, divisions over, um, you know, food for that matter, divisions over 
um, gender roles and what's appropriate and divisions over um, uh, you know, what to wear and how you dress yourself. All these things end up being these opinions that, like the Pharisees, move from tradition to central and divisive and judgmental. Um, and that's a fundamental failure in our lack of love. That's what Paul's warning against, warning them, don't let your opinion become central in your esteem of your brother or your sister. Keep the gospel, let love be central to how you engage your brother or your sister. Let your opinions be just that, opinions. Um, Paul talks about you know, the fact that a lot of these people are sitting in judgment on each other. Why, in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother, he's talking to the Jews there. Why do you Jews pass judgment on your Gentile brother? Why do you Gentile background uh, Christians, why do you despise your Jewish background brother? Right? In verse 4, he said, are you, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. When... Um, when Paul's des- uh, describing this uh, dynamic, he's saying, look, you are not your brother's master. He has one Lord, uh, and, he, and you're not to judge your master's servant, another master's servant. He says, you are not your sister's judge. Uh, there's only one judge, and he's on his throne. But you are your brother's brother, and you are your sister's sister. So don't play the judge. Don't, play, uh, don't judge another master's servant. Instead, don't exercise the authority that you don't have. Um, We are all going to appear before the judgment seat of God. That seat, that seat of judgment is where um, the the Latin word, uh, we get the word session. So when it says court is now in session, that means the judge is on the judgment seat. Uh, And that trial is underway. Uh, In the church, we have a session. Um, The session is comprised of the elders, and God has called the elders, those who have been elected by the congregation, to serve as judges for the congregation. Don't take on authority that you haven't been given. Um, instead, the authority that you have been given is that of a brother or a sister. Don't dismiss the authority that you do have. You know, um, the most famous passage about judgment would have to be where Jesus is saying, you know, hey, don't judge lest you be judged, right? Matthew 7, judge not that you not be judged. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And we always think, all right, so therefore, don't judge. You should never judge. It's bad. That's not true. You're supposed to judge with equity, and you're supposed to judge in a way the measure you use will be measured to you. So what Jesus says Three verses later is, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so what this means is that the way that we relate to each other means I have to first humble myself, own my stuff, see the log in my own eye, before I can then come to my brother, come to my sister and say, hey, I really want to talk to you about what I see as a speck. Uh, Cain responded to God when God asked, where's your brother Abel? Cain's answer to God was, I'm not my brother's keeper. Well, yes, you are, and so am I, and this is how we need to, to relate to one another properly, not as, not as a judge, 
not despising one another, but simply you know, loving one another with humble accountability. Because we all know, and verse 10 tells us, that ultimately, I'm not the judge because there is a judge. And verse 10 says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us, as, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, God is able to make his servant stand. Um, each of us is going to give an account of himself to God. We will all, each of us, appear before the judgment seat of God. And I just have one question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's going to come a day when you will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account for your whole life? We were in Colonial Williamsburg uh, visiting Michael. He's a freshman at William and Mary. And there's Duke of Gloucester Street with all the colonial stuff, and there's the courthouse. And we went into the courthouse, and the, the interpreters were explaining the setup of the courtroom. And, you know, the, you come into the double doors, and the, on the farthest wall, you see the judgment seat. Uh, there's, it, there's a bunch of, there's a long bench where other, you know, judges uh, would sit, but there's one main central judge's seat, and it's got this tall um, backing to it, and the, the, um, the seal of the monarch uh, above it, Deus et Mondroit, God and my right, you know, so that judgment is going to come from that supreme authority figure, and if you are on trial, you stand trial. And there is a bar that divides the, the public and the defendant from the lawyers and the judges. Uh, when uh, somebody wants to become a lawyer, they have to take an exam to pass the bar, literally to pass a bar that divides the courtroom. And the person who, the, the, the defendant, the person who's on trial, stands trial. They stand during the entire trial, and the judge sits for the entire trial, sitting in judgment on the defendant. We know that's true culturally, civically. Do you believe that's true cosmically, personally, and eternally? And if you do, what do you, what's your plea going to be? It can't be not guilty. I know it's popular for sometimes, you know, preachers to scream at, at folks and say, you know, you're terrible, awful, wicked, um, horrible sinners. And uh, I know that I'm a sinner. Um, there's some beauty and image of God in me, and there's a lot of brokenness and sinfulness and wickedness in me. We're, we're complex. We're a mix. And I think that's true of all of us. But none of us, none of us is not guilty. Some of us are more guilty than others, but none of us is not guilty. What's your plea going to be? And so if you can acknowledge, all right, well, I can't plead not guilty. That makes me guilty. Then what in the world am I going to do? I need help. I need a rescue. I need a redeemer. I need a savior. I need somebody to stand in my place. And that's exactly what we believe about Jesus, that he stood in your place. And he was judged. He was judged. He was judged unfit to live. 
by all the people with all their opinions about what God's Savior should look like. And they judged him and they sent him to a cross. And he went in their place. He went because he was loving his enemy. Taking away our judgment, taking away our condemnation, and then giving us all of his love and all of his goodness as our record, and then saying, all right, now I want you to live into that. Learn to live that way. Christians are known (laughs) for... Uh, a bunch of things, but uh, when you ask the person on the street, what's your opinion of Christians? Um, Well, they're fairly judgmental, and they're a bit argumentative. That should never be. If the gospel's true, and if Jesus took our judgment on himself, and we receive his mercy, the last thing in the world that you and I should be is judgmental. And if he has loved us and given himself for us, and if we're receiving that love, the last thing you and I should be is argumentative. What if Christians instead had this reputation in society? Hey, what do you think of Christians? Man, they are incredibly patient people. They are are so willing to engage and listen and have a dialogue and to hear and understand the other point of view. Yeah, they have their boundaries and they have their view of right and wrong, but they also understand what's gray. And they also understand a bit about what love looks like. You know, at the end of that discussion, my Christian friend didn't, didn't agree with me, but I felt compassion. I felt loved. I felt understood. Is that the kind of life that you and I are living? Is that the kind of engagement and relationships that you have at work, that you have at school, that you have at home? Or are you judgmental and argumentative? I think we've all got a little repenting to do and believing. And by God's grace, we'll become a lot more loving. Let's pray. Father, would you give us uh, grace and help to learn how to love and to become less uh, judgmental, uh, less argumentative, less sure of ourselves when it comes to opinions, and more sure of you and your righteousness and what you say is right and what you say is wrong. Uh, Teach us to listen as you uh, lead us. Teach us to understand and to love as you have loved us and shown us mercy. I pray for any here who are um, awakening um, to the way that you love us and are seeing the the grace of Jesus on the cross for them and are even feeling conviction for the first time. Lord, would you uh, bring them home, uh, help them to close with Jesus this morning and rely on him completely. Lord, for all of us, would you grow our faith? Help us to reflect more and more accurately and beautifully your mercy through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.